I'm Laura Bonnell, and this is the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast coming to you from Detroit. Please subscribe and even rate and comment on our podcasts when it moves you. I learn something new with every podcast, and I'm always inspired by the people that are showcased here. We don't give medical advice. You need to connect with your doctor for that. I hope that this Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast educates you and sparks some volunteering or advocacy. The CF community needs people like you. Thanks to our sponsors, Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex for their support. Karee Kwong Calloway is the founder of Queen Kong, and I have a personal connection with her. She has the indie rock band that she founded in Los Angeles, California, and she is a multi-instrumentalist. She is the soul singer and the songwriter, and she was discovered at the age of 17 by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Karee opened for the band in 2005 and released her debut album, Get a Witness, about eight years ago in 2015. She tours in the UK and Europe, and since then she's accomplished so much more that we're going to talk about. Love Me to Death, another LP, Oh Well, and Couples Only. We will also talk about her personal life. She married guitarist Wes Borland of Limp Biscuit. The couple lived in Detroit, and that is at about the time that I met her or shortly after that. Corey, who I met before she went public with her CF diagnosis, filed for divorce in 2019, and her CF journey was painful, and you'll hear why. Just an incredible time talking with this amazing woman who I have grown to love, and I'm always looking to see where she is in the world and what she's doing. And you're going to fall in love with her as well. Great. It's fabulous to be doing this Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast with you. I can't wait till everyone gets to hear your story. Are you in the midst of a tour or you just ended your tour? You're in LA right now? Yeah. So um, I just got back from tour last week. I was um, tour with two bands, actually two other bands called the Dandy Warhols and the Black Angels. So it was a pretty big tour up the West Coast, up to Vancouver, and then randomly ending in Texas. So it was a little bit chaotic, but it was great. How were the crowds? How was the feedback? How did you feel on this tour? It was actually amazing. It was really challenging, to be honest, because I did something completely different than what I've been doing. Um, I did this tour solo. So usually I have a band backing me a touring lineup. Um, so I tour a lot, I guess pre pandemic, I was touring a lot, but, um, post pandemic, not as much, but I've always toured with the band except for when I was a teenager, I opened for nine inch nails by myself as a solo artist without a band. And I had things thrown at my head and people screaming at me the entire time. And it was kind of a traumatic experience to say the least. So after that, I was like, I'm never doing that again. I can't do this by myself. I have to have a band, a backing band. I don't want to be on stage by myself. So when I was offered this tour, they actually, because there were two other bands with big setups, they actually asked me to play solo. So I started having a lot of anxiety because of um, the last time I played solo when I opened for Nails. So At first, it was very stressful to have to figure out how to do it all myself. You know, there's drum tracks, drum machine, a um, synthesizer, and I'm playing guitar as well and singing. 
there's a ton of guitar pedals and effects and just a lot of um, stuff to have to do as one person by yourself all at the same time. But it ended up going really well and people were super receptive. And I think now that I've figured it out, I kind of just want to keep going with the solo thing. I think it's really empowering and also pretty cool to be totally self-reliant. I saw how Wikipedia describes your music oh God, and all I can only of that. Imagine. No, they said it's like indie music, you know, but when I listened to it and when you did a song for us when we first hit the pandemic and we did that virtual fundraiser, that song gave me chills. It was beautiful. I love it's like romantically beautiful. I don't know how else to describe it. And then you do things completely the opposite also that are, I mean, they're, it's louder. It's a whole different thing. Um, but you are in it completely. So I enjoy both spectrums of your music. I just think it's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I do approach it more of just, I see it as an art rather than song structure and, you know, if it's radio friendly or, you know, I, I see music as an art, so I don't like to limit myself. I try to span a lot of genres, but live, it's definitely very loud, <laughs> very noisy <laughs> and wild and chaotic. But I think genres are kind of on the out anyway, which I appreciate. I think it's um, really freeing to not have to fit yourself into a box that is a genre. So that works in my favor. I agree. And as a listener, I really appreciate it more when people ask like what you like. It is also I feel the same way. Well, I like everything, everything that appeals to me. I'm not stuck in one, you know, category of music either. You know, it's whatever gets you feeling right. It's whatever. Yeah. In the moment. Yeah. Right. So there is. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that, too, because there's so much and art. Oh, my gosh. Music is absolutely art. It's just I wish I could sing, but not a chance for me. Um, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, so take us, I guess we'll start a little bit back with when you started in music before you were discovered. Um, by Nine Inch Nails, right? Um, before that, and then kind of where you are now? Um, I grew up around music um, because my dad had a pretty well-known nightclub in Denver, out of all places. And it was an industrial punk goth rock nightclub called Rock Island. And it wasn't just a nightclub. I think it was a scene. And I think... Being around music from the get, I just felt like it was a language that I understood and that I could communicate with better than maybe I do um, verbally. You know, I'm able to, I think, more effectively communicate through sound and through um, lyrics. So I felt that way from a very young age. I think I really struggled to communicate and um what I was feeling and my needs and my wants and um, when I was a kid. So music came more naturally than just verbal communication. And I found some sort of peace in it because it was very cathartic. And I think I, as a kid, I was very, I had a pretty traumatic, chaotic upbringing and I didn't know how to cope. And I think music served as a coping mechanism in a lot of ways. So I gravitated 
towards it at a really young age. I had taught myself several instruments and and used it mostly as a way to communicate words, though, like my lyrics. Um, the lyrics were always the most important. And then came the music. And I was doing that all through middle school and high school. I was in a punk band in high school. And then when I was 17, I met Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. And it just kind of turned my life around because I was headed towards going to college on the East Coast in New York City. And instead, I moved to Los Angeles and started working at music here. And it was strange because I think Hollywood and LA, it's a very specific culture um, that you don't really find anywhere else. Um, and not in a good way, you know, it's a lot of it's really toxic. So as a teenager, it was really difficult coming to LA um, and trying to pursue something, you know, an artistic endeavor within the entertainment industry, because those are two different things. So that's how I got started. Um, and it took me a while. I opened for Nine Inch Nails a few times when I was a teenager, which I described earlier, and it was unpleasant to say the least. And the business side of it, the industry side of it's really unpleasant. And I did not take naturally to that at all. I think when you are younger, you like to think you work hard at something and you're rewarded. Um, if you just devote yourself fully to something and work really hard, and if you're good at it, you know, you're rewarded for it. And that's just not how the entertainment industry is. Success isn't dependent on being talented or working hard <laughs> um, at all. So it's, it's very backwards and strange. And it was hard for me to acclimate to a lifestyle in Los Angeles and Hollywood. But um, I've been here for a really long time now, and I've never quite liked it. I've lived um, a few other places as well where I've met you in Detroit, and now I'm moving to London. So, but you know, I think LA is where I technically got my start in this industry, not as a musician, but in the music industry. That is so interesting and interesting you said that because I think a little bit broadcasting, being a journalist is a little bit like that. Work really hard, but it's not always, it's not a clear path, you know, mm -hmm. so I can relate slightly to that. So take us, you know, kind of where you go after you've played with Nine Inch Nails and then what happens after that? I... Started Queen Kwong as, you know, it's just me, but I had a backing band. And so I started playing a lot um, and got a lot of radio play in the UK. So I just naturally, for some reason, things picked up there. I mean, I know why. It's because I play non-commercial type music. And I think the UK audience is more receptive to that. So I started getting play in the UK and I went over there and started playing a lot in the UK and Europe. And that's where I'm mostly tour because that's where my um, the majority of my fan base is. And I was doing that for many years and I put out a couple of records. I just put out my third record last year, but I've put out EPs too. So I've done three full length records and a couple EPs. And I do things in a pretty unique way when it comes to um, rock records. It's not usually how people do things, but my creative process is um, a little bit different where I don't pre-write any songs. I just record in the moment. So all the records are pretty much improvised um, in the moment. And then I just release it as is. And then when I'm touring, the songs kind of actually come together more. So 
the recorded versions of my songs aren't the most perfect, but they're maybe the most um, honest and raw versions. Um, and my first couple full-length records are not easy to listen to by any means. Like, um, even though they did get radio play overseas, I know, you know, it's more of, I'm an artist, artist, like there's a lot of critical acclaim, but when it comes to actually listening to some of this, it's very difficult because it was stream of consciousness type recordings, um, very lo-fi. The last record I put out last year, the most recent one, um, I think I got a better handle on how to do that kind of creative process and still make it listener friendly, or at least as listener friendly as I can be. So anyhow, I was doing this for a long time. Um, and I met my now ex-husband, I guess, I don't even know when that was, um, seems like an entirely different lifetime, but I met him years into my career and he actually is also a musician and he played in my live band for a while. Um, we did a couple tours together where he was playing guitar and we moved to Detroit because we had a home renovation reality TV show, strangely enough. And um, it was about us moving into this house in Detroit, our move there and renovating it and turning it into a home studio for ourselves and also for a record label we wanted to start there. And that's how I ended up in Detroit with my ex-husband, my now ex-husband. And this was all before I knew I had cystic fibrosis. And I think the cystic fibrosis diagnosis actually was a huge turning point in my life um, because, I mean, I was diagnosed, I'm trying to think I was when I was 30, I believe. So pretty late on. Right. Um, and I'm half Chinese. And I think even though I was really sick when I was a kid and I've always had respiratory issues and I mean, I've always been kind of sick on and off my whole life. But when I was growing up as a kid, um, it was still believed that Asians couldn't really have cystic fibrosis. Right. So my mother being Chinese, um, it was just ruled out. Like I was never even tested. I had never had sweat tests or any kind of tests to test for cystic fibrosis because it was just ruled out because my mom was Chinese. So the turning point, so I, I get to Detroit. I've already had a pretty good career as an indie rock musician. I've toured the world. I got married at the DIA in Detroit, the Detroit Institute of Arts. It was kind of like a very perfect, seemingly perfect um, setup. And I wanted to explore Detroit and lay roots down there. But when I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, my life was kind of turned upside down and everything changed. Um, I think within months, my marriage was over. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's when I met you. That is when we met. Okay. So <laughs> you met me at the lowest point of my life. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it was for me, just, I don't know, it's weird to say it was a touching time, but it was like, I just wanted to be there for you like I would for anybody who has CF and is thrown in this situation. And yeah, it was actually wonderful to meet you, you know, and you're still in my life. Like, and now it's weird to say you have a great story to tell, but you do have this great story to tell. And so many people are going to learn from you. And now there is more testing for people of color, but still in the United States, you know, there's underdiagnosing of the Asian population and African-American and um, Hispanic. But yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's been weird. It's been a weird, I think, because it's been a few years since I was diagnosed with CF, but because I was diagnosed with CF and then my life seemingly, as I knew it, my life fell apart really fast. I didn't start to process what the diagnosis even meant until probably more recently. You lived like one of the worst nightmares. I mean, just that I heard from my kids, like, will somebody love me if they know I have CF? And then Wes from Limp Biscuit, you know, that was like, that was a fear that a lot of people can relate to. And it happened to you. Yeah, that that's true. It is. I don't I don't know. I obviously I can't speak for him and I hope to never cross paths with him ever again. However, I will say that being the one who was diagnosed with something like cystic fibrosis and and the doctors at that time, really not having a good idea of what the prognosis was because um, my combo of the genetic mutation combo is very, very rare. Um, They didn't really have a good idea of what the prognosis would be for me. And at first it was really scary because I was diagnosed when I was in the hospital. I was very, very sick. Um, CF manifests in a few really scary ways that um, one is I, my lungs start to bleed. I have really bad lung bleeds. And within seconds, my lungs are just full of blood and I feel like I'm drowning and I technically am drowning. And um, I was hospitalized and they thought I had tuberculosis. No idea what I had. And at the time, my then husband was by my side and very supportive and seemingly perfect. And that's what you hope for when you're sick and you find out that you have a disease that's going to be a lifelong disease. And you hope for someone like a husband or a partner in life to be that partner in life. And there were hard conversations, you know, doctors saying, well, this is what it means. Probably like, this is what it means, like lifespan wise. This is what it means. Like what you as a touring musician, as a singer, um, as somebody who travels a lot, this is how you could be affected. A, B, C, and D. These are the downsides. If you want to have children, there are things you have to consider. And it was a lot for me. It was really overwhelming. And it was a lot for him. And he, uh, you know, bailed um, in a very dramatic way. (laughs) In a like, let's burn down everything type of way. And we had a pretty public relationship because he is in, um, I mean, I guess they're a famous band, but um, infamous band. And it was hard because I was not only left by him, but left by a lot of our mutual friends. As I said, you know, in this industry, people tend to, you know, where the chips fall, it's usually people are go where the more famous party is, you know, out of fear of burning a bridge or I don't know. I don't know what it is really. Lack of integrity runs rampant in the music industry and the entertainment industry. So I I was abandoned on a lot of fronts. And to be honest with you, I I was just in survival mode where my life just, I lost everything, you know, everything, Um, health insurance, my house, my car, my pets, a lot of my friends, my life partner. And I lost everything so fast that I just went into survival mode, you know, to be honest, was just like, how do I get through today or this moment? And processing my diagnosis was not, you know, that was put on the back burner. It was more just how do I get through right now, this moment and on to tomorrow. And, and for a long time, it didn't feel possible. For a long time, it was very, very hopeless. 
and um and then I made my most recent record couples only and it was so cathartic and necessary for me and it deals with everything that we're talking about but also just being an imperfect person and what that means and accepting that and kind of owning it and also facing you know mortality and facing loss and abandonment and betrayal and how temporary everything is you know the good and the bad um and that's where I am now, pretty much, you know, I put out the record last year. It's been doing great. You know, I, it was reviewed really well. I had this great tour. I'm recording another record. And I think only recently, like only this year, have I really started to think about what CF means to me and what living with CF means to me. And I, and I still don't know. And I think you're the first person I'm talking to in depth about this because I feel kind of guilty and kind of, I feel conflicted and a little bit ashamed because I, it's like, who am I to talk about CF when I still don't understand it? You know? Um, so it is just so unique to my experience. But earlier this year, I was very, very sick. I had pneumonia, COVID, valley fever. I, and I'm always dealing with like CF related pneumonia in some way, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But I had so many things all at the same time and it was very scary. And I think I had to really face not only what like day-to-day -day chronic illness meant, but that this could really affect, you know, this could kill me. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be, that, that's as blunt as I could put it. I was like, wow, I, I can actually, this can actually kill me. What's going on with my lungs and my immune system and everything right now. And I think this year I've been much more, conscious of the gravity of that and how that will be reflected in how often I tour or how hard I tour. Um, that's something I have to really consider for the first time. So. And how long has it been since you were diagnosed? Six years. So that's not long. Mm -hmm. And I, I say to people who have a late diagnosis that you're, you're really in the baby stages of this disease still. Like my girls, we diagnosed them. Molly was three months old. Emily was at birth. And you have all that time to process it. But when you're diagnosed so late, like you can't beat yourself up about maybe you don't know everything because the process is so long. I mean, there's the whole grief process about having it and then going from there and then trying to understand it all. I mean, if I remember correctly, you either you didn't know what enzymes were and you were... No, no idea. That's what I thought. So you hadn't even heard of enzymes and I couldn't believe like no one put you on enzymes yet. No, you actually were like, you educated me a lot more than even the doctors were. I mean, you know, I was actually talking to you and I think there's been several times over the last few years where I've asked you, have you heard of this or this is what's going on with me? And I, you know, because... Yeah, I really don't know a lot. It takes so much time to learn and then and to advocate for yourself and say to a doctor, this doesn't sound right or this doesn't work for me or how do you know this? I mean, it's okay to challenge them and ask questions. You should. And then if you don't like a CF clinic, go to another one because they're not helping you in the right way. 
So I'm sure you've learned so much just in the short time that you've been diagnosed, but it's such a long process yeah. to learn everything. It is. And I'm still, I'm still doing it, you know? And I mean, what you just said, just the grief that comes with it too. I think it was really convoluted because the, the grief that I was feeling, um, it was all wrapped up with like the CF diagnosis and my marriage ending and my life as I know it ending and being uprooted. And then, you know, I, there was, it was just too overwhelming. It was hard to parse out what's what, you know? So I think now that I'm in a better place in my life, it's actually, I have to take more time to really um, actually feel and understand what it means to have CF. Yeah. And it's still, it feels very strange to me still, very foreign. And I can't tell you how many times, like if I go to a new CF clinic or even the same ones, but I see new personnel, like new nurse practitioners, whatever, and they come in and they're like, what do you mean you don't know what this is? And do you have one of these? And do you have one of those? Do you have a port? Do you have, you know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, a port and a vest and enzymes and this and that. And I have no idea. It's been hard because in a lot of ways, I don't have CF. I'm CF free um, appearing. (laughs) Right. Because it's an invisible disease. Yeah. It's a totally invisible disease. And because it manifests in just kind of seemingly random ways for me, it's very atypical in my case. And so it's been hard to know. It's hard to know how to be careful even a lot of the time, just even being my entire adult life. I've been kind of this punk rock, indie rock, wild musician and singer. And that's weird to... There's like a disconnect between that and who I am when I have, you know, when I'm bedridden with pneumonia and coughing up pints of blood and and having to be rushed to the hospital. You know, I don't, I haven't quite figured out how to reconcile those two parts of me. And that's such a terrifying situation. I mean, terrifying. (laughs) It's so scary. No matter how many times it happens, I think it's so scary. Um, It happened with um, one of our daughters, and it's never not scary. It's always scary. Yeah, and it's one of those things where I still don't. Sometimes um, my boyfriend said the other day, you know, we've been flying back and forth, and I've traveled internationally my whole life, but but my lungs were hurting, and I was like, oh, gosh, like I hope that, you know, there isn't an inflamed infection that causes a lung bleed or whatever. But then he was like, well, what if we're on a plane? What if we're on a 12 hour flight, you know, and that starts to happen? What does that mean? And I don't, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have the answers for that. Right. Yeah. That would be really scary. As a matter of fact, you know, it's called hemoptysis when you're coughing up blood and when you have a hemoptysis, um, exacerbation, you are not supposed to fly for two weeks after it, but I'm sure you knew that, but yeah, things like that. But, um, I think they've dealt with everything on planes. Yeah. Yeah. God forbid that happened. You know, they would take care of you. It's just one of those things that I'm like, gosh, I don't, it's weird that I haven't thought of that before that, or that's even a thing that I have to think about. Right. But yeah, the hemoptysis is a strain. It's like how CF has manifested the most like outwardly for me. Mm -hmm. It's like the number one symptom that I have shown consistently. And it's very jarring and scary. And, And sometimes it's just a little and sometimes it's a lot. And then 
when is it an emergency and when is it time to, you know, go to a hospital? But as you said, it's just scary. It's just one of those things that you see in movies, you know? Right. Like blood everywhere. Scary movies. Yeah, scary movies are like, oh, you're about to die type situation, (laughs) you know? So it's, um, it's scary. It's weird. And I'm, I'm still figuring it out. And I know we talked about it when we were meeting here, but do you have more family support now? I know you didn't then. And that I can't imagine. That's so hard because like when your marriage ended and all those people left you and then you have no family support, that's extremely difficult. Yeah, no, it it, it was really hard. Um, no, you know, luckily I have friends who stayed by my side through all of it. You know, I came back to LA and I was homeless for a year and I was just staying at friends' houses on different sofas. And I have great lifelong friends who have a strong moral compass and did the right thing and were just very supportive of me. But, you know, I also, like I said, I grew up in a really strange way, you know, a unique, had a unique upbringing and I don't have um, the family support that, um, you know, like I, I see how you're there for your daughters and you, how your family works as a unit And that's amazing. And I think that makes a huge, huge, I mean, I know it would make a huge difference to anyone going through any kind of hardship, you know, to have that. But I've just leaned heavily on my friends. Yeah, I guess it just forces you to figure out how to be there for yourself. (laughs) Right. You see how (laughs) strong you are. Which is definitely not as comforting or as, you know, it's hard, like self-soothing is definitely not as comforting, but you just kind of have to do it. Well, and you did it. And that's what I was going to ask you. How do you feel like you are on the other side of it because you're still here. You're strong. You did what you had to do. You're still learning about this disease, but you made it. You made it through to the other side. And how do you feel about the disease now that, you know, you've come this far? Um, I think everything that's happened in the last couple of years or the last several years, the biggest takeaway has been like, just because you feel something's impossible or you feel like you're hopeless and nothing's going to work out and it's just impossible to go another day. Like feelings aren't facts, you know? And just to remember that, like you said, I'm kind of out the other side of that horrific saga of my life. And, um, and there was a long time where I didn't think that was even possible. Like I truly felt it in myself that I would not make it, you know, and I have. So um, obviously I was wrong about those intense gut feelings I was having. I was like, I know that this is the end. You know, it wasn't. I'm here. And there's something reassuring about that. And when it comes to just living with CF, I think it's an ongoing, intimidating, sometimes scary, mysterious journey. And as you said, I'm kind of at the beginning of it still. But I do feel like I'm in a place where I'm actually strong enough and prepared enough and secure enough in myself to take that journey without just being terrified, you know, just taking it head on. And um, it's taken a lot to get me here, though, (laughs) to get me to the place of, you know, being willing to even admit that I have cystic fibrosis, honestly. And that's what I was thinking all this time that you're talking and just the journey that I've seen from, you know, afar, like, You are so strong. You did it. You made it in your career and in your CF and in your love life, you know. 
like that's fantastic and you should be so proud of everything that you did to get where you are thank you i mean that is huge thank you i i think i appreciate you saying that because i think sometimes hearing it from somebody else puts it in perspective because yeah i went through hell <laughs> you i did. went through hell so thanks i appreciate you recognizing that i do feel like i'm in a place where i can be proud of where i am you know yeah, you really should be. And how is the CF journey? I, you're going from the UK, which according to my daughter, Molly, who lives there, she's like, the healthcare system is fabulous because you don't have out of pocket and crazy mm -hmm. stuff like we do in the United States. But how are you feeling? Because you're probably being seen still in both countries. Yeah. Um, so until next year, I'm being seen still at UCLA in Los Angeles. But next year, I'm going to be part of NHS, the national healthcare system in the UK. And so um, I think just prioritizing finding the right team of people and going through all just the, the hoops you have to jump through to just paperwork and proving that you need a specialist, et cetera. But after that initial part's over, after you've done the, the kind of technical parts of it, you're set up with a team of people. And unlike here, like you said, it's like just part of the national healthcare system. So I'm really looking forward to that because it's been such a struggle here with the health insurance here. It's been a disaster, honestly, for me. And I'm looking forward to having that weight off my shoulders. And also, I mean, I'm going to hit up Molly too, because I could definitely use some input on how to navigate that. Absolutely. She would definitely help you. And I think, too, it's like you're out of pocket there, from what I understand from Molly in the UK, is you don't spend more than $150 a year for your medications, you know, things like that. And I know you're an independent artist, but still a job isn't connected to health insurance there. So if, you know, like during the pandemic, when Molly lost her job, she didn't lose her health insurance. Which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Everybody, Everything has their plus and minuses. I mean, we got CF modulators before the UK and before Canada. So there's just a lot of work to be done in healthcare. And and so are you thinking about advocacy, not only in addition to yourself, but just in general? Like, do you think about doing any of that public advocating? Yeah, it's actually something, I mean, to be totally transparent, I'm very conflicted about it because it's something I'm really interested in and that I've started. I've started on a few different things, but I also am still trying to figure out how to talk about my own experience. And I think I've connected with several people who um, have CF and figuring out where my voice is most useful is where I'm at right now. I've been really outspoken about issues with the healthcare system here in the U.S. And like you said, there's pros and cons to everything. But I do know that even not having health insurance in the U.K., I got sick there a few months ago. I went to a private doctor who cost $100. Um, I had to get steroids and antibiotics. And I had to pay out of pocket for those because I don't have health insurance there yet. And it cost the equivalent of $26. Wow. And so, <laughs> you know, there's downsides to everything. But like when that happened, it was a real eye opener. And so I've been really vocal about how messed up the healthcare system is here in the US. I mean, people, I understand now, like people die because they can't afford healthcare all the time. <laughs> 
And so I, I think being somewhere where there's socialized healthcare and also being able to live the difference between the struggles I've had here and then seeing what it's like over there, I think I'll be able to educate myself a lot more and personally get personal with um, the ups and downs, the upsides and downsides of both healthcare systems. But so far, I'm really looking forward to um, moving to the UK and taking advantage of that. As- right. I totally get that. Yeah, there are things here like the Prescription Drug Affordability Board that wants to put a cap on things because they're saying the medication's too expensive. But then if you do that, there could be research and design could take a hit and pharma could move out of a state. And I know right now the National Institute for Health and Care Excellent, which is the acronym is NICE, and that's in the UK. They're starting to talk about the high cost of medication. So it is everywhere. But I'm glad to hear you're thinking about advocacy because your voice is really important. Thank you. You know, and needs to be heard. And I think the place to start is absolutely with your story because it's a it's a great story, a hard story, but it's a great one. Well, I'm writing a book, actually. That is something that happened this year. I, I have the opportunity to, I'm working with some really amazing agents and I'm writing a book of my story. And I'm right now, currently trying to figure out how I want to talk about having CF. And that's actually been one of the most complicated aspects of the book. So um, I think the process of writing this book and figuring out how I want to talk about it within the book is really going to help me figure out how I want to talk about it publicly in general, because this is the first time with you right now that I'm talking about it really in depth. So... Well, we're honored. And I think it's interesting to hear you say that about writing the book, because at one point I always said, well, what do I have to say? You know, what could what I have? I used to think like, oh, you know, I don't know any more than anyone else. And then you realize we all have such different and individual experiences. It is so important to speak up and tell our story um, because it does impact other people. Yeah. So I'm really glad you're doing that. Thanks. And I also think it's okay not to know. That's the conclusion I've reached is I think sometimes saying like, this is what I'm going through and I don't know what it means exactly. And I don't know how to make sense of it. Like that's a very human experience. And I think it helps when you hear other people be like, it's so, you know, I don't know either. And that's okay. Like you're not alone in not having all the answers. I think you're right. Everyone has their own experience, but that's a very universal thing that we can all kind of relate to is like, we can't have all the answers all the time, you know? And don't you feel so much better now that you're talking about CF? I always feel like when I talk about it, I get so much back, you know, because someone will say, oh, I can relate to that, or I didn't know about this, or thanks for sharing. How are you feeling now that you're sharing your story more? Um, it's been, but like, I think as I share it more, I'm interested and excited and curious about what the response will be. But I've been super private about it. But just being outspoken in general, more so this year because I was in a crazy court case too. I was like, my ex tried to sue me and it was a very public, very (laughs) publicized um, court case. And I had to make the decision to start speaking up um, in a very distinctive way and kind of go to bat for myself. And it was terrifying. But after I started doing it, I actually made so many amazing connections. And I felt 
like I wasn't alone with it at all. You know, it was, it started out as a very terrifying, isolating thing. And then it became a way where I've met so many people and have gotten so much support um, and have been able to support complete strangers just by telling my story. So I'm hoping, I mean, I'm sure that when I start talking about cystic fibrosis and my relationship with um, having cystic fibrosis, what, what it means, I'm sure um, I'll find the same community, I'm hoping. <laughs> and do you now share it with the people you're on tour with? Or is there no need to do that? You know, um, no, I don't. I, I think I probably actually, it's a really good point. It's not that I feel like ashamed or anything, but I think it's a lot to have to explain to people. And on tour, when um, when you're on tour, everybody's kind of in their own la-la land um, of self-absorption and um, fantasy. And it's hard, like, because you don't want to, like, bring down the vibe or whatever. But one thing I've really struggled with is smoking. So I don't smoke. I've never smoked. But a lot of the musicians I know do. And pretty much every band I ever tour with smokes. A lot of my friends smoke. And smoking has become, especially after lockdown, you know, during the pandemic, I was never around smoke. But now that I'm back out in the world, being around smoke has really messes up my lungs. Like instantly, I feel it. And it instantly, my lung infections flare up. And I've struggled with figuring out how to tell this to people <laughs> like you know it seems like a pretty de like my boyfriend's just like why don't you just say it like this is a health hazard for you you know but it's been hard to even say that much like even getting to the step of being like hey you know can you not smoke around me even saying that was so weird as a touring musician saying that to other touring musicians is like <laughs> you know I'm kind of the party pooper of the group but this is just me trying to figure out how I can once again, like defend myself and take care of myself and go to bat for myself. And it's these little small things that come up in my everyday life where I'm like, oh my gosh, I, like I have to, I'm having anxiety about telling someone like, hey, can you not blow cigarette smoke in my face? Because <laughs> I have chronic lung infections and pneumonia, you know, and, and not feeling weird about that. But it's still something that is a little weird for me. So I'm. It's once again, I'm just trying to navigate it. Yeah, but I would think they would understand because if they've ever experienced a cold and they think it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them, right? Or they're trying yeah. to sing through a cold. Like you would hope they would get it. You know. You know, musicians are a funny group. But good job starting. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're a funny group of people. Wow. Is CF going to show up more in your music or what do you think about that direction? I think it's something like I'm making a new record right now. I'm writing this book. I'm going to be composing a film soon. And, and I'm just thinking about using my voice, how I'm going to use my voice to talk about cystic fibrosis publicly. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for that in the next year or two. And what I'm doing now, just talking about it more, I'll get more used to it and accustomed to it. It'll become something that's more natural instead of awkward um, and uncomfortable. So I think the more I do it, the easier it will be. But I think um, just with all the projects I have going on, the attention that that will bring, I really want to make it a point in this next, you know, the next round of press releases and all the press I'm doing next year for the projects I'm working on now. I, I want to make it a point to 
talk more openly about cystic fibrosis and bring more awareness to it. I think it's really important. It's important for me as well as just to be able to be a, an outspoken voice, you know, for other people who have CF because it's relatively unknown to a lot of people. You know, I didn't even know, I'd never even heard of it when I was diagnosed with it. So I think just like using my platform, I have to figure out a way to use my platform to be able to speak more openly and publicly about it when these new projects start to get attention. I think once you do, it's going to bring you so, so many stories and so many connections. I think it's going to blow you away. And people will discover you for so many different reasons, you know, additional people. I, I just think it's going to be fantastic for you. I wanted to ask you, too, just a couple more things. Um, are you part of the 10% that is not able to go on any CF modulator or? Um, so my mutation that I have on my mom's side is like nothing is known about it. It's been really, really a mystery to everybody, every doctor, every specialist. However, a lab tested my combo against um, the Trikafta, the two drugs that make up Trikafta. Mm -hmm. And it was responsive. So um, the issue with a lot of, I mean, insurance won't cover any of these things unless it's proven that my mutation specifically can be benefited from these medications. And because my mutation is so rare, there's really no proof um, that I could show to insurance companies. So I'm going down different routes trying to just have the genetic testing done independently in labs so that I could then have these labs write verified letters saying that my mutations do respond to this medication. So um, that's where I'm at right now. Otherwise, I don't have like a daily regimen of anything. Um, it's just kind of the Wild West out here. Wow. <laughs> they, you know, I, they trip me on, um, is it Palmazine? Palmazine, mm-hmm. Yep, albuterol, that kind of stuff. But the nebulizer. Mm-hmm. And I had such a crazy allergic reaction to it, I had to be hospitalized. Oh, no. It actually shut my lungs down completely. Wow. And I passed out. Um, so it was very, it's been very strange. And I've done different trials of medications. Um, mm -hmm. And even Trikafta, I've done, um, had many sample packs. And, um, and it's really... Like, it makes no sense what's worked and what hasn't. So right now I'm just trying to get the genetic testing done or the testing Mutations done against the and, mutation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you're figuring it out and that's what's important. And what works for my girls isn't going to work for you and vice versa. So I'm glad you have doctors that, that are working on it. Um, and I have to tell you, so I know you love cats, right? Yes. Like, how many cats do you have now? <laughs> I don't have any right now. I was what? just fostering a couple, but then I decided to not commit to adopting them because I knew I was moving overseas. But when I get over there, <laughs> I plan on adopting. That is wonderful. Well, I've gotten a cat since we talked, and uh, she's like what? our... 18th hour of sleep right now or something say, crazy she's napping but she's napping yes and actually my daughter emily is visiting from chicago and she brought her cat so oh. the two cats are sleeping napping of course um, but they get along they get along and cats 
are incredible. This is my first cat ever. We adopted Wait, her. Yes, oh it's the first cat. So you'll find this funny. So she was on the streets for a year, adopted her. She was nine pounds. And then all of a sudden, I thought, oh my gosh, she has food insecurity. So I'm always going to leave food out. Then she doubled her size. And so she was 18 pounds. And I was like, oh my gosh. So she's been on this little safe veterinary you know diet and she's down three pounds and those three pounds she's like hopping over things now she's like back to her two-year-old little self and and you know she still has some more weight to lose but it's hilarious she her energy level now is like she's like wow this is great yeah they're so funny you know what there's such characters i can't believe every cat has such a strong personality of their own and yeah i'm a huge cat person obviously as you know but Anytime someone's like, I don't, you know, cats are all the same and they're all like this, they're all like that. And I don't like them. It's like, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. They're so so complex and, and unique and hilarious and just goofballs too, just complete goofballs. But they are. I'm so happy that you got a cat. You've been converted. Yeah. Yeah. Once you have one, like and you get it, you get it. Right? Oh my gosh, night and day. And then just to throw a little crazy in there, we got a puppy. Oh my God. (laughs) On top, I know. But they all like each other, so it's all fine. But it's very funny. Is the cat kind of raising the puppy? Because a lot of, um, when when you get a puppy and you already have a cat, they like kind of, they rear, they're the ones who are like raising the puppy and the puppy actually, I think dogs turn out better when they're raised by cats. Oh, yeah. She definitely puts him in his place. She's not swatting or screaming at him. She just she even gives him a look or like back off, sit down, like chill out. So it's very funny. It's uh, a zoo over here. That's great. Happy for you. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity. And this is definitely something I've been wanting to do. And this is um. And I'm figuring out, like I said, how to do it. So this helps me a lot. And it's difficult for me to articulate a lot of this. So thanks for being kind of my um, my soft launch. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did a great job. And I, I know you're going to help people and inspire people when they hear this podcast. So thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Thanks. We'll talk soon. We will. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin Allen. It's not complicated. Who happens to have cystic fibrosis. We all got our worries and fears. I know what's got you frustrated. But loving you is so all right. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. It was produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.